Welcome to the Beer Sec Ops Podcast. Yeah, I said beer. Some had to go to make room for beer, and it wasn't going to be sec, was it? And we need those ops guys, so sorry, Dev. Beer Sec Ops, who will be having conversations with cybersecurity industry influencers and frontline DevOps warriors to help provide us with a cloud-native security blanket. To those who are treading lightly into our hazy DevSecOps world of rainbow shundering unicorns. Hey there, Beer Sec Ops podcast fans. Today our guest is going to be none other than Liz Rice. Liz Rice is relatively, we can say as an understatement, prolific in the cloud native and Kubernetes community. She's chair of the technical oversight committee for the CNCF, among other things, has a whopping great open source team at her disposal to create some of the amazing tools offered by Aqua Security, and I'm lucky enough to actually work with her. So I've had numerous occasions where I've just been able to sit down, grab a beer, and chat. Um, one weird, notable moment in Barcelona post-CubeCon where we were just sitting on a bench talking about our Desert Island Disc choices. She's a great conversationalist, very charismatic speaker, as I'm sure you've probably seen in previous occasions. So without further waffling, here's... Liz Rice. Liz Rice, thank you very much for being on this uh, podcast. So you've recently, you, you, you changed, have you changed roles or just title in that you are now VP of open source at Aqua Security? I would say it's it's kind of an evolution. Um, I, I mean, I still, I've been working on the open source projects for, for quite a while. And, um, you know, I still have an evangelism role and my team has an evangelism role. But what's really changed is that I now have a team. There's, um, you know, half a dozen of us now working on open source at Aqua, which is, I think, a sign of how important the whole company sees open source to, you know, as, as a one pillar of our strategy. Um, so it's a very exciting time. And it's and it's growing, and there, there's a recent um, a recent change as of was it this Monday or last Monday that the the Trivi uh, image scanning tool has been become part of the uh, the family. That's right. Yeah, just over a week as of uh, as of this recording, and uh, it, it's been brilliant to see the reaction to to Trivi. We had a huge um, uh, you know load of interest, lots of traffic, lots of people coming and trying out the tool. I should probably say what it is, shouldn't I? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's a container image vulnerability scanner written by Tepe Fukuda, who uh, joined Aqua very recently, um, bringing his amazing tool with him. And Trivi is fully open source. And it, it's, I, I really love the way that it manages the vulnerability database because it updates the database every night by updating some Git repos hosted on GitHub. So if you have a copy of Trivi running on your machine somewhere, to get an updated uh, set of vulnerability information, it's basically a Git pull from this open source repository. You don't have to type in the Git pull, Trivi does it for you, but it's a super nice way of managing small changes to a large data set using Git and using this kind of you know, open source tools that we're, we're all familiar with. So that was one of the reasons why we really, really like Trivi. And it's super easy to use. Uh, 
we first heard about it because people were telling us that they'd come across this really easy to use vulnerability scanner. And uh, so we were super excited to, uh, you know, that Tepe was keen to join the team. And uh, I think he's excited to be with us as well. And it's, it's, it's going to be great to see how that adds to our portfolio. It complements what we already do with container image scanning. And it's part of a, you know, the, the ecosystem around open source security tools. There is a scanner, it's called Claire, that's, that's open source. Um, but I think, uh, you know, if you use Trivi and you use Claire, it's very clear that Trivi is a lot easier to, to use. You, know, you just install it and run it. Um, there's no sort of installing of different components. So if that means that lots of people go out and scan their images, that will be great. Everybody's security posture will be improved. And I'm all for that. So is there, is the knowledge base that Trivi uses, is that something that's going to either, is that going to change as it becomes part of Aqua? Or is, I mean, is Aqua's, because Aqua has a knowledge base, that's, that's where I'm going. Right, yes. So what we want to try and do is, is combine the best of both worlds. So um, there's some open source data. Um, the, the information that Trivi is collecting is from various open source um, sources of information, the security advisories from various distros and from various you know, package managers and um, language security advisory information. In the commercial product, we also have some uh, commercial sources of information, and uh, you know we we will always have additional information that our paying customers will will be able to to access. But we want to try and combine the best of these two things so that while the paying customers will they will have additional scanning information like you know they will be able to things like scanning for sensitive data like passwords and credentials or malware scanning i don't see that you know, that that will remain part of our commercial offering mm-hmm. but the the kind of free that we want to offer you know really usable and really useful open source vulnerability information okay so Trevi is a good place for people to start who would be listening to this, looking to get into image scanning and container security. That's, that's, a, that's a good first step. Absolutely. And generally, when people ask me, you know, what, what should they do to improve security in their container deployments, image scanning is the one thing that I recommend people to do because it's something that you can do, um, you know, you can build it into your pipeline. Um, there's lots of automation you can do. There's lots of useful information you can do based on this vulnerability information. But right from the get-go, you know, you can run an image scanner over your existing images and just have a picture straight away of are you running with some, you know, hideous critical vulnerability that you really should have known about. Um, and you know, you can do that from your laptop by just downloading Trivia and running it over your set of images. Awesome. So that's so steering away from there at the moment, uh, and and I just wanted to talk a little bit more about your involvement with CNCF. Is that mm. okay? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. so can you summarize your, your what you're doing at the moment and and how you got there? <laughs> yeah. So um, I am chair of the technical oversight committee of the CNCF. So the CNCF is Cloud Native Computing Foundation. It's, the, it's part of the Linux Foundation. It's the organization that owns the intellectual property 
for cloud native projects like Kubernetes and Prometheus and Envoy and the I think nearly two dozen uh, incubating and graduating projects plus a whole group more sandbox level experimental projects. And it's so the CNCF offers this neutral ground for um, not just holding the intellectual property, but also for people to collaborate on cloud native projects. And the Technical Oversight Committee is really there to um, steer the technical direction where we're going. You know, what do we what do we mean by cloud native, and what technology do we still need to build? What projects would make sense to fit into that um, that overall cloud native stack? Um, that's really what the the TOC is there to to help kind of steer that that technical direction. Um, and yeah, I've been chair of that since uh, I think it was early March this year. Um, it's an amazing opportunity because I get to you know talk every you know pretty much every week with some amazingly smart people who are doing really you know the the TLC is a sort of who's who of cloud native world. So um, I'm learning a ton from interacting with these people, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's. It's a huge opportunity to sort of get an insight into the strategy, the the thinking, the direction of cloud native. You know, why are end users, and when I say end users, I'm really thinking about the enterprise adopters of cloud native. Why are they doing that and what do they need and what can we as an organization do to help ease that adoption? So it's a very, very exciting organization to be involved with. Uh, it, does, it, it does seem, so again, inspiring. How did you go for, so if someone were to want to follow in your footsteps in terms of getting involved with cloud native, open source, and then working their way into an influential position like that, where you can actually make a big difference, how, how does that happen? Like how, how over the past three years have you gone from wherever you were then to where you are now? Is, is that an easy way? Is, is that an easy qu- Probably not an easy answer. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I guess there's, I can answer it in two ways. There's a sort of, you know, the experience I had and also what we're trying to do to help people um, have a path to kind of influential and um, leadership roles in, in, within the CNCF and, and within open source more generally. Um, so for me, I, you know, I guess for quite a while I've been doing a lot of, um, I'm going to say community work in terms of education. You know, I've been doing a lot of um, talks and and conferences and just trying to sort of, um, I guess I got very, very excited about container technology and and cloud-native technology. So I wanted to try and share that with people. And that kind of led to uh, an invitation to uh, be, I've done quite a lot of program committee work with with various conferences. And I, I ended up getting invited to be the co-chair for KubeCon Cloud NativeCon, which is a CNCS flagship conference event. Uh, And it's basically chairing the program committee, putting together the schedule of talks that's going to happen across those conferences. Um, Again, amazing kind of 
experience to learn from some some fantastic people. And my my first co-chair was Kelsey Hightower, and um, you know, getting to to work with him on on the program and, and understand from him. You know, I, I feel like he taught me a lot about what it means to have a community conference. What do we really mean by that kind of word community? So that was really, really exciting. And I think as part of that, I, I knew that I wanted to do more when my year of doing the program committee co-chair came to an end, I knew that I wanted to carry on being involved in the CNCF. Um, and, uh, yeah, some some conversations with people led to me standing for a position on the TOC, and uh, well, in the end, that's that's how I've I've ended up on the TOC and uh, and ultimately got uh, elected as chair, which was uh, you know a huge honour. And um, everybody talks about imposter syndrome, and yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, sometimes I kind of go, you know, I can do this. So, yeah, I have to kind of, you know, look at myself in the mirror and kind of go, you know, you, you've done this for a while. You, you do know some things here. It's okay. <laughs> but um, in, in terms of, you were asking about the path for other people to get involved. And um, one of the things that we've done this year in the TOC is to formalise a thing called SIGs, Special Interest Groups. And the idea is that we kind of, devolve responsibility from the TOC to these SIGs who specialise in particular areas like security or networking. And um, those groups can help us assess different projects, help us assess the landscape in those areas. And um, we also see it as a way for a broader set of people to get involved in leadership roles. Every SIG has chairs and tech leads and possibly some other roles that, that they might want to, to set up for themselves. And it's a way for people to really kind of prove themselves in the community and uh, yeah, hopefully provide a kind of a progression ladder for people. Okay, that's really cool. Yeah, and, and it's really nice to see a range of people from across the community really getting stuck in and, and you know, standing up to, to take on some of these roles. It, it's, there's so much talent out there. Uh, and uh, we really want to take advantage of that to, to kind of lift the lift the level of everything. You know, the thing about rising tides floating all the boats is uh, is very true in an organisation like CNCF. Okay, so something I'll ask you at the very end, so you don't have to answer this now, is I, I'm always curious how foundations like CNCF get started. So it would be interesting if you know if you can make reference to any founders that we had, that we can put onto this podcast. Oh yeah. Yeah. That would be because it's interesting that there are so many organizations at an enterprise level that are going cloud native now, and there is a foundation like that there to support that effort. So it's you don't have a chicken or egg scenario. It's like there's something there already to help you that someone had the vision to build when it maybe wasn't as common. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I suppose things like the Linux Foundation or like the Apache Foundation. This kind of foundational structure has existed for a while, and I think Linux. You know, if you look at Linux itself, it's it's really you can sort of see the logic in how you know there's basically one guy, Linus Torvalds, who you know he kind of is Linux, and for any given giant corporation to employ him, that would be a huge. I, mean, I, I have no idea whether he would want to work for a giant corporation, but I think the point is more that nobody wants to see 
something as influential as the Linux kernel fall into one particular vendor's control. So there's, it's a neutral ground, may, makes sense. And uh, I think we see that extending across lots of other projects. The same, the same was true for Kubernetes. My understand, So you should get people like um, Joe Bader or Craig McClucky or um, Aparna Singer. I think she would be really interesting to hear her um, kind of articulation of what happened because I've only heard the story you know, second or third hand. But uh, I think it's really about taking this technology that, you know, Kubernetes is clearly a good, Google could have kept that to themselves, right? That it's based on what they were using to operate their own system. But, you know, for all sorts of reasons, they decided they wanted to open source that and that it would make sense for it to live in a neutral home so that people trusted it and that people felt they could adopt it without necessarily having to you know, 100% align themselves with one company. Um, And I think that's one of the big reasons why it's taken off because enterprises feel like it's not just supported by, you know, it's it's not like Google Reader. They're not going to turn it off tomorrow because even if Google decided for some reason that they didn't want to support it anymore, there are, you know, a lot of other companies supporting Kubernetes, contributing to Kubernetes, developing their own distributions yeah it's here to stay and and it's not reliant on any single organization which is one of the reasons why people are you know enterprises are prepared to bet their bet their futures on it absolutely yeah how how big how many people were at kubecon this year it was something like it was something absurd oh oh my memory for numbers is terrible uh was it, i i heard 7000 or some some ridiculous i yeah i want to say eight and a half so uh, so I, I'd like to sort of pivot now, seeing as we've gone through um, Trivia as an image scanner, uh, and then is that CNCF? Or that's, that's Aqua now, but... but uh, yeah, it's, it's Aqua right now. Um, so we, we, might, um, we might well submit it to the, to the landscape, um, which is a giant, giant tool of many hundreds of different uh, CNCF tools. But right now, we, you know, it's part of the Aqua portfolio. Okay, so I, I, I guess what I'm, I'm curious about now, if, if, and this is going to be your opinion, of course, I'm asking for, um, CNCF tools that can help uh, the container lifecycle um, that are under that umbrella at the moment. And is that too big a question? Well, I guess... Security. Okay, yeah. If we, if we narrow it down to security, yes. yeah, there's, there's, there's some great projects in the CNCF. Um, so... I guess the first one that would come to mind would be Notary and Tuff, which is not just one, it's two, because Notary is an implementation of the Tuff spec. And that's all about software supply chain, knowing that the image that you are about to run is genuinely the image that you intended to run and hasn't been interfered with in some way since you you last looked at it or that it's been signed off by all the people that you need it to be signed off by. Uh, that it's been through all the testing that you need it to be going through. Um, So Notary is a really um, uh, kind of solid, I I would say. It's it's pretty mature. It's been used by, um, it's been part of Docker's offering for a really long time, but it's also been used by a number of other organizations uh, that we've heard from. So I'm uh, notary, I think, is a really um, useful thing for people to consider as part of their 
um, overall cloud native stack. Um, the other kind of high flying security related tool in the CNCF landscape is Falco. So uh, Falco is kind of about observing events that might uh, might have a bearing on on security. So, for example, I guess you know, sending you an alert if you were running a, a privileged container, for example. There's some really neat technology in Falco. Um, although I do have some, I don't think it, it's the full picture because it. it it, it works on this kind of observing, uh, observing events. And uh, I think, you know, you know, and I know from our work with enterprises that you, you, if you just observe things, you, you may be, yeah, you may be bolting the, no, what's it called? Locking the stable door after the horse is bolted. <laughs> <laughs> Get my analogy right. Um, it, you know, you, you want to have something preventative as well. And I, I don't think we have anything in the, CNCF landscape today that really gives you that kind of locking down, preventing um, a wide range of uh, security events. Although actually there is OPA, there's an open policy agent which can be used to lock down policy-based, uh, you know, prevent you from deploying that privileged container, for example. Um, I actually think OPA is a really, really exciting space. Definitely want to spend more time on that project. Yeah, I think internally we've talked about use. About OPA a lot, and did you do a talk on it last year? Or am I yeah, right? I did. I um, I actually did a talk on it uh, at one of the KubeCons um, because I think it's uh, it, it was kind of a combination of looking at some of the harm that you can do if you run. Uh, so, for example, containers run as root by default, and uh, because it's default, it's very easy to have containers running as root, really, but wouldn't it be cool if there was a way you could prevent that from happening? And we have pod security policies, but how do you know whether a pod security policy has been applied or not? And, and that's where things like OPA, you know, <laughs> it's called a policy agent for a reason. Have you, <laughs> have you applied your policy? Um, so I think it's a very um, powerful technology and it's kind of, um, kind of open-ended. You know, it has this policy, policy language you can write your policy about kind of anything, really. So, uh, and that is actual genuine prevention because you can stop something from being deployed if it doesn't meet your policy. I didn't want to interrupt whether you are going to uh, add into the list of uh, security tools. We've got, uh, well, trivia, although it's not part of it yet, which sounds great for image scanning. You've got Falco for runtime awareness. Is that a good way of describing it? Yeah, I guess that that would be a good. I, I don't know what the what their own catchphrase is. I should probably probably look at that. But I think yeah, it's a, it's it's a useful observability tool. Yeah. Okay, and notary for signed images. Yes. So you can get kind of a, you can achieve something in terms of an open source container security infrastructure with those three sort of. Yeah, I, there's lots of things that you can do with those with those tools and, and also with some of the, you know, security policies that you get from Kubernetes itself, you know, just network policies and, and they rely on the network plugins. So it's kind of a way of managing uh, network security offerings from, you know, things like Calico. Uh, that's pretty, 
uh, sort of built into Kubernetes, which is which is useful. Oh, and the other um, uh, area of security that exists in the CNCF is uh, the service mesh uh, offering. So there's Envoy, there's Linkerd, um, Istio, which is not part of the CNCF, but is very much complementary to the CNCF. And you know, I, I, I certainly think we would see it as a kind of a sister technology that you know a lot of people are using Istio alongside Kubernetes and giving you that kind of network so making sure that one service can only communicate with the other services that it's supposed to so how can I ask a quick I'm going to take a really big step back and ask you an open source um, a question how does a, how does a new project gain traction so, and, and I realize this, maybe this is too big. I'm, I'm asking big questions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for that. But if I were to start an open source project and get it, and I, I probably have to be quite involved in the community to get enough, I don't know, stars <laughs> is a rough way of putting it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I imagine that if you talk to people about how they have made their project successful, uh, there'll be an element of sort of survival bias you know, to, to their stories. And, and I'm sure that for every project that is, you know, widely adopted, there's probably, you know, some number of other equally deserving, but for whatever reason, not as well-known um, projects out there. But yeah, I think community uh, involvement is really, really, really important to uh, getting your tools known out there. I mean, a really great example would be OpenFAS, which was started by Alex Ellis. And he did some amazingly good talks when he was first launching OpenFAS and built a community, did some really nice things to encourage people to get involved with that project. And, and I think he's probably, you know, if you wanted to have like a case study on launching a successful open source project, I think what he did with OpenFAS would probably be a really good you know good lesson there. and I guess another really good example would be Trivi where you know it's already got I haven't checked it today but it was certainly very close to 2,000 stars last time I looked and you know Tepe I think mostly by having a really really solidly good project there you know it's it's so easy to use and sometimes you know word will spread when you have a really good good project the project being really good is definitely a Definitely helpful. Yeah, I guess it needs to fill a gap and uh, be, I think sometimes things like having a really clear readme is, ah. you know, <laughs> a really great start. <laughs> it, does, it does help, yes. I, yeah, I guess it does help. And it's, it's a situation a little bit like where it's, well, a little bit like yourself, where you have technical ability to create something, but you're also very good at talking about it. And that, and, and and doing that within the community to spread the word—that's that's always very helpful, isn't it? I, I I hope it would help. Yes, yeah. I I think um, yeah. No amount of doing a good talk. Well, I would like to think that no amount of doing a good talk will make up for a project that isn't you know useful or good. Um, but it certainly helps if you can have people out there talking about your product, and if you can show people how to use it and make it easy for people to use it and explain to people why they should be using it, then that's got to help adoption, surely. And how much, you mentioned easy, e easy to use. How much 
how important is, I, I think it's very important, just to, how important is that if you have two equal projects? I mean, ease of use in a sort of DevOps world where um, if it's, if it's especially if it's developer focused, they're going to want this to be, well, I don't know, almost over the top easy because they're not going to want to have to try and work out any of the difficulties involved in it. And is that, right. is that right? I completely agree. I think it's, it's, you know, a huge part of the adoption curve is like it, removing friction, making it easy to use. And it's, it's, case study for this would be docker right you know containers existed containers were a thing already but docker put it behind this really straightforward command line tool that appealed to developers that developers you know didn't have to pull together a whole load of different concepts from various different places and they did a great job of socializing the tooling that they built and you know suddenly containers are really you know (laughs) widespread thing it's interesting. All about how, ease of use. Yeah, and it's interesting how the different how you think something's really easy to use, and then somebody does puts a layer on top of it that makes it even easier. So, you know, Docker to manage uh, Kubernetes to manage containers, and then you get organizations or enterprise organizations like um, Rancher or something who can make even who can take an abstract layer away from that and make it even easier. For sure, yeah, and some of this is about scale, right? So Docker made it easy to run containers on your laptop. I'm, I'm setting aside the sort of the whole enterprise platform, which came later. I'm just thinking about in the early days, mm-hmm. Docker was um, the thing that kind of democratized it for developers working individually. And then you needed other layers of abstraction to make it easy to use at scale where, you know, things like Kubernetes, I, I remember the days, <laughs> you know, I remember the days when people were using containers for all the kind of, um, you know, dependency management advantages, the, the ability to run the same code on your laptop as on a server, but they were still running one container per server in the cloud, you know, because managing deployment was really hard. And we've moved on from that. We have orchestrators, we have, you know, CICD pipelines, things have gotten a lot easier to move containers into the enterprise but then you you know you see things like you know what what we see when we talk to customers and they need to have visibility you know in in our world it's about security they need to have security visibility across you know entire clusters all brought together in one place and that's a layer of kind of ease of use that you know you don't necessarily get from a command line tool or is, is much harder to get from a command line tool i'm sure we kind of keep seeing ease of use and ease of like visibility, transparency, something like that, um, working its way up the stack and outwards in, in across scale. I'm, I'm not going to stop at the big questions. Where, <laughs> do you, where do you think we're going to be then? So if, if I go back five years, the world's a whole different place. Where do you think we're going to be in three, five years in terms of like what's on the horizon? What are the, are there any obvious major gaps that need filling in this cloud native world that there are maybe incubation projects that you're seeing through CNCF that might solve this problem there? Or do you think we'll still be heading heading in the same strong cloud native direction with no major disruptive forces? Um, I think like right now, the thing that seems to be top of mind is about, um, well, I will use the phrase application delivery. We've just set up a SIG or it's actually strictly speaking, it's going through the uh, formal voting process as we as we record um, to set up a new SIG 
related to app delivery tools. So I think this is really following on from what we were saying about ease of use. We need to bring, there is still a gap today between what your average enterprise developer is doing day to day, writing, you know, business application code and how that gets, you know, through the whole pipeline, through the whole security system, how it gets deployed. There are lots of pieces of that that are automated and improved and, and um, you know, that are in place. And there are lots of really interesting ideas and, and we see things like GitOps, but from the person who is writing, you know, Java applications or .NET or whatever, you know, they have to get their code changes from, you know, there's a whole sort of layer of app definition and um, how you convert that code change into something that's running in a container or in a serverless function, you know, somewhere in the cloud. Um, there are there are a lot of steps in that. That that whole process can still be made much more frictionless, and I think we'll see a lot of development in that space over the next few years. Cool. All right. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Straightforward answer to a big question. Nice. Can I? I'm just going to end with uh, asking a more non-technical question. So what do you do for when you're not writing code in Go or managing a team of open source specialists? Um, you're a avid Zwift, Zwifter? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. What, what, do you, what do you do for fun? Yeah, so um, I am a cyclist, but for reasons of, you know, weather and traffic and convenience and all sorts of things. I actually do quite a lot of my cycling inside um, using a platform called Zwift where you basically have your bike on a stationary trainer. You're in a kind of virtual reality world. You can see all these other people around you and you can race them and you can have drafting effect. And uh, it, it's um, a super good training platform as well. So, you know, a lot of the pro, pro riders, you know, in the real world of cycling, I use Zwift. Um, as a training tool. So, uh, yeah, I, if I'm not at my desk quite a lot of the time, I'm sitting in uh, my garage or also known as the pain cave. Everybody <laughs> has a pain cave. Um, trying to, you know, push out some watts on my bike. It's, uh, <laughs> definitely, you can't be thinking about, you know, any difficult open source problems when your heart rate's at 172, you know. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Ask what you do for fun and you make reference to your pain cave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is really sociable as well, though. It's, it's quite, quite nice. There's, there's a lot of community stuff and, and, and it can be quite fun. Okay. So, so if somebody out there wants to, uh, to race against you, that's the, that's the platform. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right, Come great. find me on Zwift. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So is, is there anything else that, I didn't lead you down a path that you wanted to mention uh, before I wrap it up. Uh, I don't think so, but I'm going to ask you a question. So All from, right. from your perspective, what, what do you see when, when you talk to people in the field, what's their reaction to that open source tooling from Aqua or from, from other places in the community? I think there's general, generally a lack of awareness of what's available in open source tooling specifically for security, because most of the enterprises or organizations that I speak to, the first thing I introduce to them is what's available in open source. 
And this often comes as a surprise, and even even kind of more so because they they've got us there, they've got Aqua there, and they haven't even gone to get out to see what's available from from Aqua as as for free that they can they could have tried before even speaking to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and that, I, I think that's why when you were going to do this show, I wanted to talk to you about what's available in open source and CNCF and where that anyone who was listening to this who was going down a cloud native and certainly a DevSecOps approach to this, this, this for them, uh, quite often a new world, where can they go first so that they have right. some tooling in place so they, they at least got a step one before they start looking to allocate budget, that sort of thing, into how they can how they can get something more at an enterprise scale. So that's there, there's a real lack of knowledge, I think, out there. And that's that's what I'm, I'm trying to hope to promote. Does that make sense? It would be saying, yeah, it, it really does. I, I think I definitely get the impression that there are, um, you know, sort of your traditional enterprise security um, team who are kind of being asked to react to this change to cloud native and um yeah i would love to be able to sort of raise the profile of some of the things that they can do in the in the open source world and and make them aware because there's a whole load of things that they can do that will improve like we've been talking with image scanning you know just to really security posture right from the get-go so yeah Mm -hmm. lots of powerful tools out there it 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 is and I, when I'm when I'm talking about the people who don't know, that's often the people who are making the decisions. If we if I went down to the developers or the DevOps uh, gurus who are at KubeCon, they know, but they're often not in the conversation necessarily. Right. I mean, we'd like to say that DevSecOps is a beautiful breaking down of silos, but it, it's not always what is actually happening um, in an organization. So there Maybe we go. that's why we need more of the. We need more of the beer in DevSecOps, right? Sort of social social lubrication between these different uh, silos. DevSecOps, that's the future. <laughs> okay, excellent. Uh, way, way to go turning the tables at the end of that. Uh, yeah. All right, uh, I'll wrap it up there. Liz, thanks very much for being on the show. I know getting an hour of your time is difficult. And, uh, You're more than welcome. It's been fun. And that has been this episode of Beer Sec Ops podcast powered by Aqua Security. I've been your host, Steve Jaguar. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>